Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, we got the chance to speak to former NASA astronaut Mike Massimino about his new book, Moonshot. We discovered his advice for achieving your goals and his memories flying the shuttle and servicing the Hubble Space Telescope. So I, I, uh, Mike Massimino, I'm a former NASA astronaut. I got to fly a couple times on the space shuttle to, uh, uh, to perform spacewalks to upgrade and repair the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, left NASA back in 2014, took a uh, position at Columbia University as a mechanical engineering professor. And that's what I'm doing uh, now still. And uh, also do other things too, including writing a book. And this is this is my newest book here. I don't know if people, people are going to be able to see this or is it just audio? Will it be both? So if, if It'll people be both. Want okay, well, if you're on YouTube, you can see the book in the background. But the new book is Moonshot. And it's... Uh, it's a it's uh shorter than my I had I wrote a memoir. This is a, a shorter book. Uh so not not hopefully not too intimidating. Uh I was happy that I looked at it, it didn't look very intimidating when I saw it fi- in its final uh version uh just last week. Um but it is has 10 chapters and each chapter has a theme uh based on things that I learned in my NASA career that I have learned have that I then the other thing I learned is that these are the stories that resonated most with audiences that I've spoken to. I've done a, a great deal of uh, keynote keynote speaking, speaking around the world about my experiences. And uh, what I found is what people really were interested in is how did we handle things like um, pursuing, a, pursuing a dream personally, but also teamwork and leadership and dealing with change and trust and the unknown and... Uh, making mistakes <laughs> how do you learn how do you you mean we you know we know how to make mistakes but we really need to learn what i found is i need to learn how to deal with them so these are 10 things that i learned that are hopefully going to be helpful to people uh not only in their professional life but also in their personal life as well yeah that's right because the uh, chapter the uh, each, each chapter when you look at the contents it looks like a sort of a, a guide to living you know like each each chapter is like a rule for living almost mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the idea. You know, it's guidelines, uh, and that's the name. Of the, I mean, the book is Moonshot, and it's a NASA astronaut's guide to achieving the impossible. So it's meant to be kind of like a guidebook for uh, things that I learned mainly in my NASA career. Um, there's some about you know, persistence and, and reaching a goal and so on before you know, trying to get into the astronaut office, but mainly things that I learned in my training and in orbit and working in different places around NASA. It was extraordinary. I learned from so many great people and. Uh, some of some of these things I uh, you know I interpret a certain way, so you'll hear my interpretation. But basically, it's it's the 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 idea, the 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 guideline, the rule, the takeaway, and then the stories behind it. Um, how you know what mistake did I make that that enabled me to learn this lesson, and then how did I apply that lesson so I wouldn't be in the same uh, same position in the future? And uh, and also, we we try. I try to uh, summarize that. And at the end of each chapter, there's the you know this the, the takeaways that you learn from uh, that you can just you know read those things at the end. That try to summarize and move forward. Each chapter is is pretty much independent of the other as well. So you can kind of pick and choose. It's not like there's a, necessarily a storyline going throughout the book. 
Um, so just about any one of those. The, the chapters are intended to be read independently if needed. Yeah, and it, it made me sort of think of, uh, when I first came across the book, it made me think about uh, the right stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you, you actually you actually talk about how that, that was an inspiration for you when you were mm-hmm. first first dreaming of being an astronaut. Were, yeah. were you thinking about were you thinking about the right stuff when you were when you were writing the book? Um, I I, uh, I I what I was yeah, the way I refer to the right stuff I think in this book was that it well first of all it rekindled the dream that I had to become an astronaut, uh, but also it kind of you know in some ways gave me the impression of what you know the astronauts are really cool and you know. They, and they have camaraderie and 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 so on uh, that I that I really really um, was hoping to capture in my life. So there was that part of it. There's also a bit about how like uh, it also my interpretation of of who astronauts were, and sometimes we see that if we're, if we're trying to do something with the boss or whoever it is, you know, someone we look up to, we tend to put that person on a pedestal maybe, and that's the way I was with the. With the, the astronauts when I was a little boy, I mean they were superheroes, and they were very cool guys. There's no doubt about it. Very, very cool. And, and shuttle astronauts were they were very cool men and women, and they were my uh, they were my heroes too. But what I found was is that once I got to know some of them by working with them at the Johnson Space Center before I was an astronaut, I felt like I fit in very well, which is kind of an odd thing too. That sometimes you, you know you have this idea of what things are going to be like, but you really don't know. And um, once you give yourself a chance to find out, you might surprise yourself that you maybe fit in better than you thought. Because that that was that's something that that I found as well. Yeah, and you also sort of say at the start of the book that like you sort of physically speaking, you you probably weren't sort of typical astronaut fare, or at least what what you'd imagine yeah. typical astronaut fare to be. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, mean, I was kind of like this, you know, this tall skinny kid when i was growing up and uh you know i didn't and i was afraid of heights and i still don't like heights i just i'm not a thrill seeker i mean i just am not and believe it or not but uh so i didn't think i would ever grow up to be like uh, neil armstrong um but you know that was my perception of what it was like and and once i once i started learning more about astronauts i found out they all they were just regular people especially the nasa folks you know they had they had their they're good things and bad things. A lot of test pilots are afraid of heights. I, I couldn't believe it, but uh, you know, I'm not the only person you know that is a that doesn't like heights that became a pilot or an astronaut. So, um, yeah, I didn't. You know, I, I I think I thought of myself as I could never do it. I wasn't the. I was not the typical astronaut. I don't think I am, but I think that's the way people sometimes uh, think of it. That it's uh, you know this this lofty group of people that do this and uh they're not necessarily like that i think sometimes we can psych ourselves out and think oh, i can't do that i'm not talented enough or i don't have this i'm not the right person and you shouldn't limit yourself you don't really know until you try and that's one of the themes in the in the book is to to give it a shot give yourself a chance to to realize what it is whatever you want to do whatever that might be whether it's doing something in a job or at home or at work or wherever it might be you don't don't psych yourself out before you even try yeah, because there could be an, an element of sort of uh, imposter syndrome sometimes, can't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I felt like that all the time and still do in a lot of ways. And uh, I think that's human nature. I think a lot of these things that make us feel like we're 
you know, we're not, we're not ready or we're not worthy or we're not good enough or whatever it is. I think that's because we're nice people. I mean, arrogant people who think they can do everything. That's what you got to watch out for. I don't know if I could help those people, you know, and, and those are not the kind of people that we, we want to choose to be astronauts when we were, or you don't want to have, I mean, someone who's like totally arrogant that thinks they know everything and they're, you know, that, that doesn't work. You know, it's good to have confidence if you can, but I think a lot of people understand that, you know, or feel just because they're regular people that, you know, they need to work hard and try to fit in and so on. And, and I think that that's actually a good thing. But I, and I think imposter syndrome probably is, is a normal thing for most people, but all of these things, I think, keep you humble, but you shouldn't prevent, they shouldn't prevent you from trying something that you think is important to you because then, then you get regretful and that's not, that's not a good situation to be in ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the bits that I thought was, thought was sort of particularly quite, quite funny was the, the moment where you, where you open the, the envelope that yeah. says that, you know, and then you find out that you've, that you've got to pass a swim test, but you don't actually know how to swim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, uh, after I was selected after my, I was rejected three times, including a medical disqualification that I had to, I had to overturn. And, um, on that, on the fourth try, I was able to get through everything and, and, and pass and, and was accepted. And, and then I got my, as you said, I got my information packet. They call you on the phone and ask you, are you still interested in becoming an astronaut? Of course you say yes. And then, uh, and then you open up the information packet that came a few days later in the mail. And, um, the introductory letter was pretty, you know, had in it as a paragraph about swimming, taking a swim test. And at first I was kind of, you know, horrified, but then I was kind of grateful. They never asked me if, if I knew how to swim. I think they just assumed that most people knew how to swim, you know, just like making a cup of tea, you know, you know how to do these certain things in life. You should be able to get in the water and, you know, and paddle around a bit. But, um, but I wasn't a very good swimmer. I didn't like the water very much and never learned to swim well. And now I was going to go through this test. And so I practiced as much as I could. And, um, but I wasn't feeling good about it. And, uh, I thought I could get through it. What I was really worried about, again, you know, looking at my perception of what astronauts were, I knew they were highly qualified people and really smart and and high high achievers. And and here I am, this you know, pointy head engineering professor coming into this really cool test pilot community. Sort of that's what I kind of envisioned. You know, now going to be hanging out with the right stuff, people. And I'm going to be flailing around in the water, you know, having really having trouble. So I thought maybe I could pass that swim test. 
but I was afraid of uh, that I might embarrass myself. But anyway, um, we uh, we had our first week of, of work where together as a class, and it was a lot of briefings in a classroom about standard stuff. Uh, and and we had a visit from Neil Armstrong, which is anything but standard. And same week, but at the end of that first week um, was all, mainly administrative, getting used to what we were going to be doing or hearing about it anyway. And then we were going to begin the second week. And um, Jeff Ashby, who was uh, in the class, astronaut class before us, a Navy pilot and a very experienced guy, great guy, um, he came in to tell us, well, you know, that's it for the week. It was on a Friday. But uh, before you go home, I, I want to remind everyone that the swim test that we have, we sort of training on Monday and we're going to start with the swim test. And I was like, how about a math quiz? Can we do something else? Does it have to be the swim test? And I was like, all right, party's over. And uh, but then he goes on to say, who are the strong swimmers in this class? And a few people raised their hand. And then uh, he he also went on to say, uh, after that, he goes, okay, who are the weak swimmers? I really need to know this. This is more important. And so I raised my hand that I was a, a weaker swimmer, or at least in my estimation, I was. And uh, he said, okay, everyone else who didn't raise their hand can go home. But the strong swimmers and the weak swimmers are going to stay after class, and you're going to arrange a time to meet. At a, at a pool over the weekend and the strong swimmers are going to help the weak swimmers with their swimming because when we go to the pool on monday uh we we don't want to leave that pool until everyone passes the test and so what i found was is that if you there was a couple lessons there i think and that I, that I discussed in the book you know one is is that if you're good at something you could set a world record in the pool for example but if you left one of your classmates behind you failed as well when you're good at something, your job is to try to help people who are struggling. And the other thing is, is that you don't want to be the person holding back the class. You know, you want to you want to be prepared and not let everybody down. But also how important it was to admit that you needed help because we were going into this as a team and as a, as a whole class. And we all wanted to pass. And if you, for whatever reason, and sometimes it's you're struggling or there's something going on in your personal life. We haven't been able to put the time in to get ready for the simulation or the exercise or whatever it might be or you're hurt you know sometimes you get hurt and you know you're out on a on a on a, out in a field somewhere doing something whatever it is that prevents you from doing what you you're supposed to be doing you need to speak up and 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 get help and it might be something beyond your control or it might be just that you don't understand what's happening because it's not something that you generally understand whatever it is you need to understand whether it's in your in your training or a concept or whatever it might be so it's really important to do that. And I think that that's really hard for people to admit that you need help with something. But if you don't, you're kind of holding back the team. And that, that's part of the point, too, is that when you can give help, you give it. And sometimes that's easier to do, I think. But when you need help, you need to admit it. And I think that can be harder. Um, but I got help from my friends, one of which was Pierce Sellers, who was a naturalized American citizen from England. And he uh, he taught me, he taught me this breaststroke that he learned as a schoolboy. He said when he was in in England, uh, and uh, that was a good survival stroke to know. And and uh, I, I, it was really kind of a fun opportunity to to learn from some of my classmates. We really had a blast, and it wasn't like they were upset that they had to help the weak people in the class. It wasn't a burden. It was just part of the job. And we all went to that pool on uh, on that Monday, and uh, all were successful. So. That was my first lesson in teamwork and what what mattered and how how it, uh, the team success is really what's important and how you contribute to that. Yeah, and you know stories like that and and the lessons learned are are what's really interesting about the book that uh, 
it, it's it the book isn't how to be an astronaut but it, it's the, it's those lessons learned that you could like i mean yeah. would you sort of think that you can you can apply most of the lessons that you learned even to just sort of more more ordinary everyday yeah. jobs yeah that's that's the story I mean, no matter what it is if you're if your family's counting on you doing something and you're not able to you should let them know i, I can't do this or if you're at work no matter what your job is and something's limiting or beyond you you need to get help you reach out and get help and also look around of where you can be helpful because what matters is that the team gets things done and we can think of the team at home with our families or we can think of the team who we work with no matter what your job is it doesn't matter you're typically doing things as part of a greater team trying to get something accomplished and everyone is important and uh you need to help where you can and and get help when you need it those are sort of the, the lessons some of the lessons that you learned during training and preparation but actually being in space actually being you know on the shuttle or doing a spacewalk i mean that's just a whole other ball game isn't it or is it <laughs> i mean what, what what sort of lessons did did you learn actually actually being an, an active astronaut well as far as far as what we learned in um in uh in our training in well what we used to say about our training and flying is that you you train like you fly you fly like you train so in other words you know you you want to whatever it is that you're doing you're preparing for your job or preparing for whatever you're going to do and you're you prepare for it that's the way you should think of it as i'm this is the way i'm going to do it when the time comes you know that even if you're like you're preparing for your driver's test or whatever i don't know whatever it is that you're doing uh an exam or whatever you should prepare you should train the way you're going to actually do it and then and then when you do it re rely on your training um what i some of the things I, I talk about on orbit for example um being being up on orbit's a bit different because now you're separated from people i mean you have your crewmates around you but you're off the planet by definition you're kind of a long way from home and uh there's that connection that we have uh to our home to, to earth to wherever we live or where we work or the community we're from that you're not there right now you're definitely away when you're in space and a lot of that happens i think to a lot of us now too working from home more since the pandemic and we're kind of away from people a lot but we have to remember that people aren't really that far away and so one of the one of the uh, stories I I talk about from from being in space uh something I learned is that uh your control center is always with you even though you might not be in the same room with them so when we would do our simulations and our training for for our flights the mission control center would practice with us we had a control team that was training with us to to uh to get ready for the flight and they would be in the mission control center and we would be in the simulator and those buildings were very close to each other but uh we wouldn't see them uh, we would only communicate over the communications line they would put an artificial time delay in there and ratty calm every once in a while and trying to make it seem like we were we were in space and so when we got to space that's the way we communicated with them and even though i was a world away uh, i could rely on them and um I had also had that job in the control center as the Capcom talking to the crew. And I and I knew I had done that after my first flight. I was in the control center doing that job quite often. And I knew how important it was to try to keep that that line of communication going. It's kind of like a uh, your your life tether. You know, you're there, we're there for you. It doesn't matter what's going on. You know, where I'm where I'm here for you guys. And that that's that was the uh, you're there for the crew. That was my feeling when I was in the control center. When I was in space. I made a terrible mistake on the Hubble. I stripped a screw trying to do a repair of an instrument and um, 
And I remember leaning out and looking at the at the planet, and we were over the Pacific Ocean, and I thought, I can't even get to a hardware store. I can't even imagine a hardware store that I can get to. I'm in trouble. But uh, you know, I, I had to tell them what had happened, and, and, and they sprang into action and uh, and came up with a solution. Now, I didn't know what they were doing. I was just trying to keep myself moving forward and and trying to be helpful and I also talk about 30 seconds of regret. You make a mistake, give yourself 30 seconds of remorse, beat yourself up internally, and then move on. And so I was I was doing that. I was trying to, all right, I made this mistake. It was terrible. Also, another chapter is it could always get worse. I wasn't going to make anything worse and um, and try to be a good active crew member. And they were working their job, and they came up with a solution that was quite clever, I thought, which was – this this hand drill needed to be removed, and I had stripped the screw at the bottom of it, but it was loose at the top. And so, the solution they came up to after we had tried different tools and other things to just try to tear it off, tape the so tape the bottom of it so we wouldn't get debris. And, and I was, since it was loose at the top, this handrail is a long handrail that was able to just yank it off. And uh, I didn't think of that, and no one my my crewmates didn't think of that. I needed anyone in the, in the control center, but it was a guy in the in the front room of the control center, but a person in the back room came up with this idea that, you know, what would he do if he was in his garage? And he said, I would just tear it off. Sometimes brute force is the way to go instead of all these fancy tools that we had. And he called to the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And they pulled, it was a Sunday afternoon, but they were at work, of course, to support us. And they pulled an instrument. I had no idea this was going on. I found out about this after. And they pulled an instrument out of the clean room, put it in the same configuration and yanked on it with a fish scale. And it read 60 pounds of force. And then they radioed that over and uh and we gave it we gave it a try and it worked i was able to tear it off but the whole the, the message there um is that uh even though you can't see your support system you might be separated from them they're still there don't ever forget that your support system is intact and that might be a family member or a friend or some sort of uh, emotional support person or a, you know a doctor to help you if, when you when you're when you need when you need help um psychologically or medically or wherever that need is, or maybe at work or someone to help with the kids or with the dog or whatever it might be, or with your a problem with your roof or who knows what it is. It, there's, there's a, we, we should, we should try to try to establish the support system. And once we do, don't forget that they're there for you, just like you would be there for them where you can help. And so reach out to your mission control center. Don't, don't feel like you're in this going through these struggles alone. Um, I really felt separated from the planet. I felt very alone uh, when I did made this mistake. Like, who's going to help me now? Mommy, please come help. You know, and that that wasn't a possibility. But but that team was still there for me, and they, I couldn't. I had no idea what was going on. I was on, I'm, you know, up up in orbit, and they're running around, communicating around the country to come up with this quick problem. It took about a solution, a quick solution to this problem. It took about an hour, an hour to an hour and a half to figure it out to come up with that solution, but they did it. And um, I, I, you know, I, 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 they were there for me. I, so I think whenever we're struggling, reach out to your mission control center. And also just as important, if not more so is be mission control for others, be that person that other people can go to when they need help, you know, be, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Call me, let me know. And uh, you know, be, be that person. When someone's reaching out for help, make sure that they know that, that you'll be there for them. And, reach out to your control center when you need help. It does sound, though, that um, <clears throat> spacewalks and Hubble servicing, and it just sounds like 
absolutely grueling, absolutely exhausting. How, how did you sort of deal with the the physical and and the mental fatigue, and even just that sort of that that overview overview effect, as the, as they as astronauts call it, you know, of seeing Earth and being in this like dreamlike scenario? Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 you know, for us, it was when you when when you you um, as far as the the grueling part, of it, I talk about that. You know that. Being nervous about doing something, I think, is a good thing because it show it matters. And then it show if if something's not important to you, you're not going to be nervous about it. But if you're nervous about it, it shows that you actually care, which I think is a good thing. But there is a point where you have to actually execute that plan when the day comes, whatever that is, the day of the presentation or of the big event or the big cleanup or whatever it is that you're doing that you've been getting ready for. And and at that point, it's I think. Uh, it's better not, to, you know, you never want to be, you can try being scared isn't good because that can kind of prevent us from doing what we need to do. So what I found to, to try to get over being scared or nervous about things once the time came is to try to remember to, to trust, to trust your, trust your gear that you have the right tools to help you trust your training that when you're given an assignment, uh, uh, you're not, your name isn't picked out of a hat. You're ready for it, even though you might not think so. Uh, you wouldn't be given that job if you weren't capable. Um, people aren't setting you up for failure typically. You know, so trust that you're you're trained well, you're able to do whatever it is that you're being asked to do, and trust your team. You know, life is typically an open book test. If you need help, you can go get it. And then trust yourself. And so that actually, I think saying, okay, I'm ready for this, I can do this, and we're gonna stick to the plan and execute as best we can, that helped me overcome what you talked about with the the grueling nature of it or whatever it might be, just Let's execute our plan like we had we had helped we had we had planned and if we need help there's going to be help available for me it's an open book test and then the overview effect thing there's a, a title in the a chapter title in the book called be amazed and um for for me looking you mentioned looking at the planet um it was so beautiful I, I felt like I was looking into an absolute paradise that then nothing could be more beautiful than 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 our planet I, I felt like I was looking into heaven. And um, that has stayed with me, and it it doesn't necessarily. I mean, I, I'd love to go back and get another view of it, but but what I find is that I don't necessarily need to go back to space to enjoy our planet, or based on that experience. And I, I try to share that with the readers that you know we, we're looking at the planet from afar and admiring it when you're up there, and it's absolutely beautiful. I think that is the way that Earth was uh, supposed to be viewed. You see, it's true beauty. But when you get down to the planet, you can still see that same beauty. Um, you can still see whether it's in nature. You can, you know, if you're out in a remote area to see mountains or whatever. But also just looking up at the sky and seeing clouds, or in a park if you live in a city with trees and squirrels running around, or dogs being walked around Manhattan where I live, or just the faces of the people on a subway. It's amazing what we what we have down here and the buildings and the, everything we've accomplished. The museums. Are, are truly amazing and our planet is amazing how it keeps us alive and we need it's fragile we need to take care of it but uh, i think that every day we should try to be amazed just by what's around us and i i think that seeing it seeing the earth from from afar made me uh, realize how beautiful it is how amazing this place is and i try to keep that in mind every day that i'm walking around the planet here and moving around in some way or whatever it is looking out a window of just how lucky we are to be here and how what a miracle it is that we are here. 
It is difficult sometimes, isn't it? You sort of when, when you're you're annoyed that your bus is ten minutes late, and then yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot tougher. It's a lot tougher living on the planet than off of it. It's a lot easier in space. Things go much more smooth. I mean, you have problems, but you have a lot of people to help you. <laughs> but yeah, daily life is not is not so easy. I, and uh, yeah, I, I I am very impatient. I live in New York City, and if I've got to stand on a line and people aren't moving quickly. I do get aggravated, but I try to, I, I try to remember what it's like not to have those things too. I mean, in, in space, we don't have a lot of crowds. <clears throat> we don't have weather things. We typically talk about on, on earth. I try to, I try to think about those, uh, in those, those times where I was in space and didn't have a cool breeze or the rain or these other miraculous things that we only have here on the planet, which includes crowds. I don't mind crowds so much as long as they're moving. I don't like the waiting around. Just saying when things are late now. Nah. That just leads to stress, and that's not good. If we could figure a better way for to to make things run on time, I think that would be good. But it doesn't always work that way. But still, I think taking a step back and trying to trying to appreciate, trying to think of the uh, the the good things that we have sometimes helps us get through those tougher times. And the the other thing that hit me looking at the planet was uh, my my concept of where I'm from and what home is uh, changed uh, while when I was in space. I think. After my second flight more uh, than my first, I think this this feeling that um, where I'm from, when I was a kid, I was from my hometown in, in Long Island. Franklin Square was the name of the town, and and that was my whole world. And, um, and then uh, as I grew up and started traveling a little bit more and going to college, I, I thought of myself as a New Yorker. That's how I kind of thought of home as New York and then in the States. And then I thought of myself as an American when I was an astronaut, and it was traveling around the world and flying in space with the American flag on my arm. And I was an American. I worked for the United States government. I'm an American. And I'll always be all those things. Uh, you know, a kid from Long Island where I grew up and, and a New Yorker and an American. But now I kind of think of it a little bit differently. When I think of home and where I'm from, I think of Earth. I mean, that's that's where I'm from. I'm looking at that planet, looking at our planet, going around it so many times, um, what what happened to me was this transformation of that. That's home. Everything I know, everything I've ever known, every every person that we ever know known about or hear about or, or anybody alive today is there that we know about. Maybe there's life somewhere else. We haven't found each other yet, but at least everything we know about and everybody we know about, everything is in this one place. And it's a home that all of us share, no matter where you're from, who you are, anywhere on the planet, all of us share that same home. Indeed, I mean that's what sort of makes that. You, you, it, and, and anytime you sort of talk about this, this, this sort of that, what you've been discussing there is, you always come back to that Carl Sagan speech, you know, about the pale blue dot. Mm-hmm. And just you just put it so well. It always comes back to that. Um, but it's it's interesting. Um, just just because it does feel like we're on the, the sort of precipice of a a new well a, a new era in crude crude space flight. I suppose it has already begun. Mm-hmm. But when we think about returning to the moon and potentially returning to Mars or not returning to Mars, getting to Mars, do mm-hmm. you do you sort of look back on the on the shuttle era and 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 the lessons that we've learned from that? And how do you feel about about sort of pri- private space flight and and the future of crude space flight and and what's what's sort of potentially happening in the next in the next few decades? I think that the program has changed a lot and I look back on it when I was a kid, you know, they were getting, 
they were working toward the moon. I mean, even the the flights that I don't remember, which were before the Apollo flights, the Mercury and Gemini flights, it was about going to the moon, and it was considered this you know, this wonderful age in space exploration. And um, it was. I mean, it, it was the greatest accomplishment ever. I think was landing people on the moon, and it was a even though the Americans, uh, the American taxpayer was primarily involved. It really was seen as a, an accomplishment for the whole world. It was a human accomplishment. Um, and it, and then, you know, then we stopped doing that and we moved on to Skylab and then Space Shuttle. And that was the focus. And now even the Space Shuttle was, was it for 30 years. And now the focus is on space station for astronauts and flying up on a, on a, uh, on a SpaceX uh, vehicle on the dragon or on the, the Russian Soyuz. And so it just, it changes. And uh, whatever, whatever happens, it's always going to be moving forward. And and even though you get enamored with something, it's not going to be there forever. So we're going to eventually move on from this period too. And we're seeing some of it, as you mentioned, going back to the moon and beyond maybe Mars at some point, I think Mars will be, will be a, is a place that we will send people eventually but certainly the moon seems to be within our reach now and um both from nasa and spacex is launching big rocket ships now that could that could reach the moon um so with, with their starship so i i think this it, things are always changing and always going to be different i think the major change that i've seen since the shuttle program ended was the 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 emergence of these private companies and nasa had a lot to do with that nasa with the space shuttle wanted it to be a commercial vehicle they wanted nasa they wanted the space shuttle to eventually be flown by commercial airline pilots to take passengers different places civilian passengers different places and then they were rewriting the manuals to do that uh back when the shuttle program first started to make it from a a, a government vehicle to something that would be used uh, by by airplane airplane companies by airlines airline pilots could fly it and then they had the first accident and that ended that that whole discussion that was it no we're not ready for that but nasa looked at this ending of the shuttle program as an opportunity to involve the more more of the private companies and to help push the privatization of space meaning that you can make figure out ways to make money and and it's all about or to to explore more for these private companies to make money not for nasa to make money um but and also NASA maybe to do other things too. So what what the push was was to turn the the problem of getting people to low Earth orbit over to private enterprise. And they had the commercial crew program, and uh, that was going to be SpaceX and Boeing building spaceships and operating and launching the spaceships. And NASA would be using it like a rental car, sort of, even less than that. I mean, it was really putting all of the burden of of building. I mean, NASA had re- you know requirements and kind of helped but it was really uh the operation the launch the care of the spacecraft and the crew was going to be the responsibility of a private company and we had never done that before and we were very skeptical that that was going to be possible and they were going to be using a lot of new technology including automation that would do a lot of the jobs that astronauts had done in the past and so we were kind of worried about all of this and didn't like that idea at first, but then we started building confidence where we saw what they were able to do and confidence in the automation because it seemed safer than what we had been accustomed to and also could reduce your training. And by reducing training, 
career astronauts don't need to worry as much or train as much to fly the vehicle. They can concentrate on other things like doing spacewalks and, and experiments and working the robot arm. And we don't have to worry about training all those emergency. 99% of the stuff we train for, uh, for the space shuttle, for the pilots, for example, to fly it. And most of the stuff I did from like working the robot arm, it, it was all these failure procedures and modes that we never would encounter. Um, Whereas now with the automation taking care of a lot of this stuff, you cut down your training and, and you can concentrate on other things. And it also makes it easier for people to fly in space who aren't career astronauts so more people can go. And then the the new technology, like returning the vehicle so you can use it again, to the, you know, returning it and, and then refueling it and going again, this reusability is bringing the cost down. So the, the access to space has increased dramatically. My students at Columbia uh, have been able to fly experiments in space, and this sort of thing would be unheard of even just a, a few years ago. So uh, it's it's opened up opportunities for people, for for students, for researchers, for tourism. Um, so when I look back, when we were so worried about these changes coming and it would end the space program, really what it did is it allowed the space program to flourish, I think, and we were really on the brink of greatness. And so... Now that these private companies are getting more and more established, and it's not just SpaceX and some of the others that we know about, or most people know about, there's also a lot of smaller companies that are getting involved. Students or I think young people looking to have exciting careers um, can look at the space program, not just working for a government or a big government contractor, but also working as an entrepreneur for uh, maybe a smaller private company doing something really cool. Space stations, I think, are going to be commercialized. They already are. We already had a few private astronaut missions to the, the space station. There's a plan to turn that space station over to a commercial company, and other companies are looking to build their own space stations. Uh, as more and more people get access, they're thinking of things that the government would never think of necessarily, of ways to to help the economy to come up with new products that can only be done only made manufactured in space because now everybody can think okay what i do on earth and the process that we do maybe that'd be better off in zero gravity maybe we now we have a chance you couldn't think about that before because it wasn't possible but now these things are possible and we're seeing all kinds of interesting things being done and all kinds of new ideas and 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 they're doing well economically and so I, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't continue and, and become even stronger in the future. So I think going back to the moon is now within our reach. We haven't been there for 50 years. We've talked about it, but it's never really been a possibility until now. And I think those changes that NASA made 12 years ago or so have led to that, uh, that possibility. And I think Mars also is a place that's going to take a little bit longer, but eventually we'll be sending people there as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.